Hello, everyone. Welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty, research, and pedagogy here at Michigan State. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. And in the studio today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming the professor and award-winning filmmaker, Alexandra Hidalgo from the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. It's great to have you on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. So talk to me a little bit about um, your, your work and, and, and the way you use uh, film in your scholarship. Great. Um, I got my PhD at Purdue University, and I came actually from a creative writing background. I had an MFA in creative writing, and but I've always liked uh, academic thinking. So uh, I was getting my PhD in rhetoric, and my first semester I realized that I missed, I, I was really enjoying the sort of scholarly aspects of, of my new life, but I was deeply missing the creative aspect that had always been part of who I was. Mm. So um, I talked to one of my professors and I said, listen, I, I want to bring film into this. I've always been fascinating with fi- fascinated with film. I can see the ways that film could uh, sort of fit with rhetoric. And she looked at me and she said, fine, you can bring film into it, but we're a production field. Hmm. So if you want to bring film into it, you have to make movies. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, like uh, a couple months after that, I was making movies. Did you have that as part of your background, filmmaking, videography? I know? had acted, I had dated um, a British filmmaker in, oh. in, uh, when I was in college, and through him... I had gotten hooked up with the film school, so I had acted in a lot of films, and I had worked uh, sort of helping people out with their scripts because I had, like, you know, I'm always good with stories and with structure of narrative. So Mm. um, I had been in a lot of sets, but I had never actually made films. And my husband and I had spent years watching, like, one or two films a night. We had gotten Mm. lost into, like... Hitchcock and I don't know even actors like Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant you know we we had like so and those are actually good people to get lost into because they had long spanning careers so if you're watching every one of their films which we did you know if you watch 50 Hitchcock films right you're suddenly starting sort of like in the late 20s or you know around there I can't remember now but very early in the film industry and ending like in the 70s so you get this uh wonderful sense of the development of, of film, the same with Cary Grant, the same with Audrey Hepburn, Ingrid Bergman. Like We uh, um, had spent a lot of time growing our history of film knowledge. Um, and with those two very disparate kind of like, oh, yeah, I've seen some films. <laughs> and, you know, I've been on some film sets like 20 years ago. Um, I just decided, not 20, but whatever, 10, 12 years ago, I decided to... Yeah. Uh, jump in as you can imagine my original that my the first few things that I did uh were terrible yeah. I mean they, they weren't ter- 
I had no, just because you've watched a bunch of films right. doesn't mean you can make them. Right. <laughs> but it means that you might have some good instincts. Yeah, that's right. So they looked terrible. They sounded terrible, but they had, the interviews were really interesting and the way in which I sort of edited them were kind of fascinating. So they, they did actually pretty well. <laughs> now, when, you're, when your professor suggested, okay, you're going to have to actually make movies, not just, okay, introduce film or right. videography into this, but you're going to have... What, what, how, how did you take that? Was that about the narrative dimension of movies? Was it about a more intentional approach? I mean, what, what was your thinking there? Uh, my thinking was, I'm going to... I, I was on fellowship, mm. so I had... Um, more money than uh, a grad student usually does. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm just going to spend some of this money and buy myself some equipment, and then I'm going to fly to Venezuela and answer a question that has been very uh, troublesome to me for a long time. Venezuela is where I'm from, by mm -hmm. the way. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela, and then I moved to the U.S. at 16. And one of the things that had very been very confusing to me is that um, here my friends were feminists. I'm a feminist. If you would mention uh, breast implants to us, it, it would be – it was like, no, we're not going to get breast implants. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. But my friends in Venezuela were also feminists, and most of them had them. Mm. And uh, the middle class in Venezuela, it's a normal – um, or it used to be before our big crisis. I don't know with our economic crisis how mm -hmm. prevalent breast implants are anymore, but at the time that I did this, which was in 2009, um, they were, everybody had them, and everybody would get them more than once. Mm. So I was very confused as to like how um, one person, me, could have these uh, friends that she loved dearly in two countries and they could be so different on this one topic because mm. they were not that different on other topics. So I went and I interviewed a bunch of people and I, I think kind of figured out sort of part of why that was happening and I made this uh, documentary about it that didn't look great, didn't sound great, but had some super interesting um, approaches to answering the question. So, so how do you think making a film added to what you were able to learn about the topic that you were interested in? Because I'm thinking that you could have done the same question, asked the same set of questions, and done it from a more traditional mm -hmm. rhetorical theory kind of perspective and, and written a dissertation that, that was very traditional. So w what was the uh, advantage of being able to tell it visually and, and have the visual dimensions? Well, I think films, uh, by the f not by default, but often have a wider audience. Mm. So if you tell somebody, hey, you want to read, even with breast implants, which is kind of an interesting topic to, to people, um, do you want to read my paper on breast implants? Uh, they're usually like, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're like, hey, watch my movie on breast implants, you're a lot more, even with documentary, mm -hmm. which is not... Um, you know, the most exciting of genres in people's minds, wrongly, by the way, mm -hmm. um, you're, 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 you'll get a lot more um, sort of engagement with people outside of academia because we think, and this is not entirely wrong, um, of academic writing as sometimes being dry, as having some barriers of knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
that are harder to cross for people who are outside academia. They're even hard to cross sometimes across fields, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like um, you can be in incredibly well-versed in your own field and go somewhere else and, and you're like, oh, I, I can follow the argument, but there's all this stuff that I realize I don't, I'm not getting that I should be getting. Yeah. Um, so in terms of access and in terms of interest, I think documentary was a great way to um, engage with this topic. But I thought it was also, there's something very powerful about hearing these people and seeing them in their houses. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because I, in those days, I was a little, <laughs> I was still learning um, how to do this. And I knew it was going to be for an American audience. So I, I said, well, if you can do it in English, please do it in English. I wouldn't do this now. Mm. Um, because I think you're suddenly putting your right. participants in a place of having to think in a language that's maybe not the most comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also, if you're watching it, you're hearing some of it is in Spanish, but some of it is in English, and you're hearing just how middle class these people are. Because it was all with the middle class because you have all these Venezuelans and they're speaking really good, eloquent English, yeah. which is already showing. So for me, and then of course I had all this... Uh, B-roll, these images of people walking down the street, so you really get to inhabit um, the country and, yeah. and, and sort of live in this uh, space. But one of the great things about uh, something like film, it's, it's not either or, mm -hmm. right? So I did the film, and I went to a few festivals, and it, it, I showed it, it showed in a lot of like classes and stuff, so it, it, it got that kind of space. Um, with the audience, but then I wrote a peer-reviewed article on it right. where I like took some of the scenes and then I examined with a bunch of scholarship, with a bunch of ideas, the rhetoric of breast implants in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So, and I sort of took that and turned it into a scholarly piece that gets at that knowledge. So, for me, one of the things that I want people to think about if they want to start working as academics who also make moving images is that you don't have to just make the film. Mm -hmm. You can also take that film and do a lot of other things with it that are peer-reviewed, that read um, to your fellow academics as being part of the conversations that we usually have in our field. One of the things that's really remarkable about the path you've taken is the way that you've brought the filmmaking into academia and, of course, then academia into filmmaking and then into connection with the, with the broader world. So I hear in what you say both um, as having film provide you with a way of giving a more textured context to the ideas that you're addressing and the, and the work you're doing, but also that you're needing to supplement it with some theoretical frameworks, with some sort of reflection on that work that is that does fit more traditionally into what we would consider sort of traditional scholarship. Yeah, I don't know if I need to, but I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, part of the question really is about how you've um, charted that path for yourself, because one of the things I'm heartened to hear is that you're 
a professor in graduate school said, "Yeah, let's do that." They weren't saying, "No, that's not how we that's not how we do things." It's not. They actually said, "That's how we do things." Uh, great. So, <laughs> so that I mean, that's already a, a, a special moment and an important moment for us. In in, Sh- in Shirley her- Rose is her name, by the way. Let's okay. give Shirley yeah, credit. <laughs> Shirley, exactly. So, I mean, uh, that affirmation of the innovative kind of scholarship you want to produce is so important to graduate students because that lends um, them the courage to do this work, which often has to be about carving out a space and giving an account to those who, you know, want to sort of police scholarship and say, well, that, well that's not real scholarship. Um, so, so yes, I, I understand that you want to do the theoretical component because it also adds another layer of texture to your work. Um, but w- where have you found the the challenges around getting that work, um, you know, accepted more in the kind of mainstream of scholarship? Well, um, let's talk about the second film so I can yeah. explain a little. So um, after I made this first film and mm-hmm. I did, I don't know, again, it's 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 super interesting and cool, but it looks terrible and it sounds terrible. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, I mean, that's the way I think about my dissertation too. I mean, it was like it was it was where I was at the time, yeah. you know, you know. But then I was like, no, I'm gonna make like a real deal film. I don't know why I decided to make a feature right, right. after making a short. I do not recommend this path, but I took it. Um, and so I made this film with a young and up and coming professional crew in New York about four immigrant women living in New York City. And uh, that one was great because it allowed me to show, like, then we were really, if you're doing four women from different countries, you're, like, hearing their accents, seeing the food, seeing their houses, seeing their work. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that was so much more um, powerful. But when I um, was here, I I made the film first, and uh, one of my colleagues said, um, you probably don't have to write a book because you've you've made this film that's a feature thing. And then I went to talk to uh, Jeff Grable, our um, my chair at the time, whom who has the same. He also came from Purdue. Mm-hmm. We we share an advisor, Patricia Sullivan, and uh, he was like, "I think you should write the book." And I was like, "But I made this feature <laughs> thing." And he was like, "You want to write the book, so you can join." the conversation in academia so you don't end up losing not yeah sort of losing touch or being lost mm-hmm. to um, academics um, so for a while it did feel and I had just had a baby and it was all a little bit where I was I think I was pregnant no yeah I was like I don't know eight months pregnant or something I was like really um, with my second uh, child so in that respect it was a, it, it felt like I was having to do twice the work, mm-hmm. um, but I'm thankful for Jeff's advice because it did exactly what he said I was going to do. So the way that the films count, and this is something um, to explore for anybody interested in doing academic work uh, that also blends moving images into it, is that films have a long history of peer review through film festivals. Um, so that film, I think it was like 11 film festivals or something that I went to, are kind of international, like around, I don't know, maybe it was three, four countries. Mm-hmm. And and uh, w- so I got that, I got and I got some awards. So suddenly I had all this like peer-reviewed international 
um, experience, but the book that I wrote, which was a video book, not yeah. a book. Right. <laughs> so I did like six interconnected chapters in part based on the experience of making that film and then looking at how other people in the field were using film and how they were making it count mm -hmm. and how they were funding it and how they were learning to make films. So those kind of went in tandem, yeah. which means that the for the five years that it took me to make that film also in part gave me a book. So right. they so that you get the film and you get the book. Not that they're instantaneous, not that the book doesn't take any work, but a lot of the what you would call quote unquote research mm -hmm. of that book was actually making the film. You're really creating a, a new genre. I hope so. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so talk a little bit about how the video uh, book, filmmaking book, I mean, the, the, the Camera film. Rhetoric. Camera Rhetorica. Camera <laughs> um, how, how How does it work? Ta talk a little bit about what this is as a genre. Well, it's we've had video essays for a long time. Yeah. And um, video essays are basically um, you write your scholarly piece, you read it, um, and then you have images that sort of make that scholarly piece come alive mm -hmm. because you're seeing footage and you're, you have music to sort of heighten the emotional moments. And um, if you're, like, I love, and this is very common, it's not just me, like if you're citing somebody, then you either find some video that they've done or you have some footage of them and you put it in so you're like really getting to... Mm -hmm engage with that person visually as well. There's also video essays, and I do these a lot, where it's like, I'm going to talk for five minutes, and then we're going to see some documentary footage, and then I'm going to talk some more. Um, so those, that is a fantastic genre. It's, it's uh, very alive. Students really enjoy it, in my experience, because they're like, oh, I'm going to watch a movie, but it's like a smart movie. Right. You know, like, <laughs> right. it, uh, it feels... Um, very innovative and cool. So what I did <laughs> is that I did six of those, mm -hmm. <laughs> six video essays, and they're all interconnected, um, and they're all dealing with this idea of how do we take feminist filmmaking and bring it into the way that we in rhetoric and composition are making films mm -hmm. um, and making them count and funding them mm -hmm. and mentoring other people to make their own films and, and to make their films count. So it was that. And I, chapter two, which is the one that defines feminist filmmaker, I specifically made it for two audiences. I made it for us in the field of rhetoric and composition, and I made it for feminist filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And they love it. Okay. A lot of feminist filmmakers have... Um, pick that one up and use it for in their teaching and use it as a m mode of thinking about their own work. So I've heard from a lot of uh, feminist filmmakers whose work I admire how much they like my chapter. So it ha it's been a good crossover piece. Um, it strikes me that the work that you're doing is, is exciting because it's performative in nature. And, and what I mean also by that is that not just that it has performances to it, every all scholarship is a certain performative dimension to it, but that you're being very intentional about putting into practice the core values that you have as a scholar, as a filmmaker, as a, as a person, 
and you're putting that intentionally into your work in ways that not only deepen our understanding of a given phenomenon, but also help others come along after you and sort of blaze a trail for a pathway for a new kind of uh, scholarly engagement. I think it's very sad if you're the only one who is doing something <laughs> in your field. Like, it, it seems like great because you're innovative, but you really would just want to work alone, you know? It's in a... I, I love video essays and documentaries. They They thrill me. So, yes, it was very important to to sort of open doors. And there were some, uh, there were other people doing it. I wasn't the first. Um, and I was very excited by their work. And, but we want more and more, <laughs> you know, like it, to, to open doors for others to sort of start engaging and innovating within a genre is just so much fun, yeah. you know, and, and then you get to see their work, collaborate with them, um, teach their work. Lonely, like being alone um, as a creative person or as an intellectual in your own little world is just desolate. It, it doesn't and it doesn't lead to good work right? because you're just isolated. Could you talk a little bit more about the value of the genre itself, namely the kind of the the degree to which you can enhance your own understanding of a question that you, that you might have? Because it seems to me that you the way that you've undertaken this work it brings uh, a number of levels of possible engagement. You obviously ha you have the the visual rhetoric of it. You have the creating of the film, which adds to it. You have the equipment that is between you and the people that you're engaged with. And then you also have the reflective component of your own thoughts and reflection on it. So there's so many components of, of the work that um, it's, it, it strikes me that, that you are able to bring different dimensions of it to bear on the questions that you have. I really like the moments when you, and as I said, some video essays have this, when you bring in the literal voice of the person, like when you interview one of the very exciting aspects of um, that blended documentary video essay space is that we get to interview people in our field and and I feel like I remember this in in grad school right you, you're like a first year grad school person and you there's all these names that are seem so big and important these people that have published stuff for years and then you go to your first conference and you're like I remember <laughs> running into Andrea Lunsford she's a, a big time mm -hmm. fabulous scholar mm -hmm in a bathroom at a conference. I recognized, I didn't say anything. I was just in awe, like, oh my God, there's Andrea Lunsford. We're in line for the bathroom. And it, it was this whole, they're almost like mythical figures um, because you get to know them through written words. Mm -hmm. You don't know what they sound like. You don't know what they look like unless you've seen a couple of photos. Now with Facebook, you might know a little bit more what they sound like or Twitter, uh, what they look like though. But, it, you know, so for a field to document itself uh, by engaging with its own thinkers and scholars, 
by filming them, by interviewing them, by sort of listening to the way that they talk, the way they move, the place that what their office looks mm -hmm. like. I always like to get B-roll of the person going about their life and doing their thing, too, so you really personalize them. Yeah. And also, the written self is one thing, but the oral self is, is completely yeah. different and wonderful and engaging and exciting. So for me, that's one of the great benefits of this genre. For You know, retcomp kind of started in the 60s, mm. the, the retcomp that we know today. Yeah. So a lot of our pioneers are still with us. Mm -hmm. um, that's a hell of a thing, right? If we could have... I don't know, Socrates and, you know, Sappho, you know, yeah. if we could, if we had anything other than like these uh, words and paintings that we're not even sure and statues that we're not even sure if, if they represent them or not, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. So I feel like um, video provides a, a way to document the present in such a rich manner and I always think about it I'm like it has some value now mm. and that value is fantastic but I'm always fascinated fascinated to imagine the value that it will have 100 years from now right when 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 all of when we're gone and the field has transformed and suddenly here is this incredible record yeah. of of these people to complement the rest What's wonderful about the work that you're doing is that it is at the heart of the artistic and humanistic approach to scholarship. You're really pulling out and calling attention to, and maybe even better, attending to the full presence of the people that are doing this work, the questions that they're asking, and the practices and habits that they're undertaking as they, as they, as they do their work. It's interesting that you bring that you bring up you know the ancient thinking and ancient um, uh, philosophy because in a, in a way I think that's partly at least on my reading of Plato what he was trying to do with Socrates which was capture that spirit of presence and recognizing that Socrates didn't write and Plato was going to use his new technology writing to to actually preserve that for us so the kinds of conversations we can still have about their ideas is because of that attention to the presence. But it's interesting because with, with Plato, especially in the later works, if they're in fact later, because they're not right. dated, um, we always wonder, like, how much are we listening to Plato? How much are we listening to Socrates, right? Like, right. It, eventually, that's one of the eternal questions with that work, yeah. is uh, we think, how do we separate the two? Right. And I know, like, actually hundreds of years of scholarship But has it, been isn't that sa the same question that we can have about your work, right? Where are you as a filmmaker and as a scholar? But it's interesting. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think it's wonderful. But I also think um, there's something about video where mm. it's like, well, you know, there's Jackie Rhodes stating mm -hmm. something, you know, like, so the record that's left behind, right. you could wonder if she meant it or not. But, you know, like, in a way, the embodied word that we're able to capture makes it easier for us to know what there's, of course, editing and there's all this mm -hmm. stuff. And you wonder, well, can I see the full, you know, the, the whole footage? How was it edited? What was done with it? But it, at least there's uh the benefit of hearing the person state those words directly. Yeah. 
So you, you know, you you there's less of a, and I I realize that it's been really fun to figure out who is Plato and who is Socrates <laughs> and where you know like right, it's yeah. been very, but but there is always that sense of, well I guess we'll never know because we won't. Right. Um, but I mean, don't you do do you feel like the 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 work that you do and the way as you think about film making, let's say you you know you're taking footage of a scholar. <laughs> And you are interpreting by the way you put the camera, the way you have, whether you ask them to speak in English or in their native language. If I don't, right? Now and I just I ask know for you're, Spanish. But I mean, all, <laughs> it seems to me that this, all those same issues that we're worried about, about, you know, where is the author, where is the composer in the work? Um, so talk a little bit about how you think about that as as a as a composer of these works. Uh, I feel like I have um, a really good solution to that if you're working with people who are present and who can look at your work. Because mm -hmm. one of the tenets of feminist filmmaker, one of the one of the principles of feminist filmmaking that I espouse is that you want to show drafts mm. of your piece to the people who are in it. Right. So, um, and you sort of, as you're preparing to film them, they're part of the creative process and of the planning process. So um, allowing them to be very involved in how they're going to be represented and where and when, um, and I always show them what they look like on camera, mm -hmm. you know, and then later saying, look, here's a draft. How's it looking? Right, <laughs> right. Um, helps a little bit with that. Yeah. Because they're getting to um, have a say in how they're represented. No, not every single thing they said is there, but they what ends up being there is something they're comfortable with and that represents how they wanted to express themselves. Right. So I mean, you're 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 really modeling a form of scholarship that is at root collaborative. Absolutely, Be yes. Yeah, and that's for everything I do. Yeah. like also I you know ironic. I'm the editor in chief of a couple publications. We do it that way there too. However, this is where it gets tricky, and it's something that I have spent a, like the last couple of years of my life thinking about. Mm. I am um, making a film about uh, my father who disappeared in the Venezuelan Amazon uh, when I was six. Uh, it's called The Weeping Season. And it's something that I've been working on since 2004. And uh, with that one, my father uh, participates through his writing, through a tape mm -hmm. that we have of his voice through his photos, uh, he was an inventor, so he participates through the patent of his invention. There's a lot of things that I have to sort of portray him, but I don't, he's unable to tell me how he feels about the way he's being portrayed. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky yeah. um, because I'm trying, but it, it doesn't have the same sort of sense of feeling like you can, like you've captured people the way they want to be captured when 
you don't get to say, hey, here's the draft, what do you think? Right, right. <laughs> and when you're also building this film out of fragments, because that's what we have, right? We have all these, there's many, they're plentiful, they're interesting, mm -hmm. they're visually compelling, or, you know, they, it, wonderful sound, or whatever. You know, there's a lot to them that is powerful. My grandmother's in it, too. She's dead. She also doesn't get to say mm -hmm. um, how she gets um, represented in this film. So in that respect, I think it becomes a more complex undertaking. And, and I think the, the richness of that complexity is, is so uh, important to attend to. And one of the, the powerful dimensions of feminist thinking and theory is the way in which the, the personal and the political and the public and the private are intertwined in, in substantive ways. So I wonder how that plays itself out for you in this particular project in the weeping season where you on the, uh, yes, as you say, you can't ask your father for his feedback on this work, but that inability to ask him also comes with a great deal of emotional um, weight for you as the composer of this of this work yeah um because the whole film is about him being missing yeah. so um and of course he's missing from the process <laughs> right, right right he's you know um it's interesting one of the ways in which i cope with it um actually goes back to collaboration mm. so um I, his sister my mother his nephew um his best friend those they're all in the film and they all help me so they're all interviewed and um for years they've helped me sort of piece together this story um and as soon as we have a draft that kind of accept other eyes on it because hmm. we don't have such a draft yet <laughs> they'll be able to see it and and provide feedback so one of the ways in which i cope with telling the story of someone who is not uh, around to verify or to complain or to applaud or whatever uh, the ways in which uh, he is being portrayed is by reaching out to those who loved him best and using my love mm. um, in order to try to get at his spirit and he is a very compelling, fascinating character. Mm. So um, at least we have that. We th There's no lack of uh, ways in which he can engage with the audience because he had a fascinating life. It's interesting that you use the, the language of coping. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's... Um, I, I hear in your response a kind of addressing a technical issue about storytelling generally, right? On the other hand, this is your dad, and this is your story. And that was one of the hardest things. When I started, um, I have this fantastic uh, editor. She is Venezuelan. Her name is Cristina Carrasco, and she lives in Argentina, and she's edited films that have ended at the Cannes Film Festival, and um, she's deeply talented, and she and I spent sometimes like five hours on Skype a day just trying to um, piece this story together. Um, but how, how, 
how do we, one of the things that we're trying to come to terms with with this story is how do you tell this story, which is a story of loss, and it's not just a story of loss of father, it's a story of loss of um, homeland, mm. what we call motherland, mm -hmm. because uh, Venezuela, my country, for the last 20 years has been spiraling out of control um, in part due to the current uh, political regime that we have called Chavismo. Um, and that is, it has landed the country in this very complicated situation. Um, it just was predicted that we're going to have a million percent inflation <laughs> this oh. year. And so it, it, it's the country is also in complete disarray. Mm -hmm. And that is something that when I originally started to make this film in 2004, the country was in minor disarray. So that wasn't even part of the story. But now you can't tell a Venezuelan story without addressing the humanitarian crisis that we're undergoing. There's great scarcity for food, for medicine. Refugees are leaving by the thousands. Um, so no, it's a story about loss of parents. It's a story about loss of homeland. And yet, Christina and I are trying to turn it into a story about hope. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, the key sort of um, things that we're trying to accomplish with it to take this story that on the surface would seem very tragic and find a way of turning it into something that's in fact um, a story about transformation, about taking all the stuff that didn't work and transforming it into strength and compassion and creativity and love. Yeah. I wonder if the making of the film itself is the performance of that hope and that and that that love i hope so i mean it's interesting we have christina and i also have this conversation where it's like great but it, I, this can't be my little therapy session right because then it's not gonna be a very good movie right <laughs> right right, right. You know? right so um but i, I mean there's a component of preservation that comes mm -hmm. with the making of a film and the, and the creative process that you're undertaking. And, and, and so I'm, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is th beyond the, the personal dimension of your engagement um, with the story, there is in the co-creation of, of a work mm -hmm. of scholarship, of art, that is an embodiment of a kind of hope and a kind of love. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think if you're not coming from love, you probably should change projects, mm. <laughs> you know, because um, you have to love the subject, you have to love the process. The process is not always lovable. Oh, yeah. There are moments <laughs> where you're like, ah. Um, but I think so, and of course, for me, a lot of the film, and it's been many, many years, has been the law, the, the disappearance is one thing, but then it's my father, as I said, had a very, he was a, an inventor, he was an economist, he went to MIT, he was 
he had a genius IQ. He was a fifth dan in karate. He was a mystic, so mm. he lived in Japan. I mean, he had all of these deeply interesting aspects to him. Um, he was also maybe not the most faithful of husbands, so then I have had to cope with that. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's been interesting about the film. One of the things that I've had to do is almost even crazier than the disappearance is discovering the person that I, that my father was, mm. um, co coming to terms with him and, and with his legacy and, and with all sorts of secrets that I've discovered over time and then not being able to say, wow, dad, that's kind of nuts because he's not there to have that conversation with me. So that's been something else, sort of... Um, having to then again I turn to all of these people that I mentioned before that are making the film with me to sort of piece it together and try to understand but yes it's not just love it's it's love that keeps on having to be very flexible mm. as new pieces of the puzzle uh, get discovered which is the same with the living really right right but right. with the living they can't explain maybe hopefully they can explain themselves if they're that kind of person who will have that conversation right. with you whereas in this case it's me and and a bunch of fragments yeah. that are left behind and and more discoveries and then trying to piece them together yeah in a sense the the work is whether you're dealing with a, a subject matter that is a living subject or that is absent it is a question of doing justice Yes, and I it, it depends on who you're dealing with. It might be that, and, and I, 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 there are limitations to every method, right? The feminist filmmaking method that I propose says talk to the person, make sure that they like what you, you're doing, but what if you get somebody who's very difficult mm -hmm. and who wants to like change everything right. about your film? Then you're in a situation where it's hard to do justice to that person and make the film. Right. Something that anybody will watch because sometimes people are so concerned with the way they're represented that they leave you with very little right. um, to use. And so on, on your on your method, does does the does the person have uh, ultimate authority or veto power over that decision, or is that a conversation that because it seems to me that there's a whole complex set of things associated with this whole, whole idea of doing justice. We, you know, there are power dynamics, there are other dimensions here that are operating, and all of those, of course, are part of the the thematic set of things you have to think about and be conscientious about. Um, in my method, we reach consensus mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Everybody gives a little, everybody takes a little. You know, um, most of the, actually, most of the people I've worked with haven't wanted anything changed, except mm -hmm. for they're like, ah, change that photo, or, you know, like very little. Right. But I did have somebody who wanted some changes, some of which would have made the film impossible because it wouldn't have worked. So I said, well, I can't do that, but what if I do this? Well, what if you do this and this? Okay, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So so we, we uh, reached... A, a satisfactory, um, I don't know, truth, if you want to call it. We, we came up with a version that 
was still a film that I could do something with, mm -hmm. but was also still something that she felt uh, validated by that wasn't uh, revealing or portraying things that she didn't want there. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I have always um, stood by, though, and this happens actually mostly with scholars. Mm. It, it's almost universally scholars. <laughs> like, you'll interview them, they'll talk, and then you'll get, like, within a day and a week later, you'll get this email that says, listen, I talked about this, this, this. No, please don't put it in. Mm -hmm. They haven't even seen it. They haven't. And usually, actually, I agree with them. I wasn't going to put it in anyway mm -hmm. because they're, they're, they're either things that were going to upset other people unnecessarily or there were things where they weren't quite sure, but I caught them off guard with a question and they were just trying to say something. Um, I do try to respect that yeah. because um, I don't I, I, films are, are important, but people are more important. Yeah. So I don't, I, don't, I don't want somebody to feel horrifically abused by, yeah. by a project that they were with me on. Sure. But I mean, I also think that speaks to the kind of culture, the uh, scholarly culture that does not value vulnerability, um, vagueness, confusion, not having it all worked out. And I think until we can come to terms with ourselves as scholars and human beings who um, don't have it all figured out, and the not having it figured out is not a sign of weakness or a sign of lack of intelligence. It's a sign of humanness and being on the way to trying to make meaning out of what, what we're doing. So I understand and have been, you know, myself in a position where ah, I wish I, you know, I wish I hadn't said it that way, or I, I hope that doesn't, you know, get added to a, something. Um, but I also then try to reflect a little bit upon that. What 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 is really the threat there to be a little bit um, vulnerable? Because we're able to work. That's how we work through our wor our world together. It, yes. No. And I think vulnerability is wonderful. Vulnerability on, on video is worse in a way yeah. because it's you yeah. it's there right. it's your fish and then people start looking at what well, what was she doing with her hands when she right. said that you know like you blah, can blah. replay it yes. i mean over yes. and over yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be a meme i mean it could be bad it, it, <laughs> it has all sorts of 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 levels and i think the threat or one of the reasons why we don't embrace vulnerability as much as we probably could is that sometimes when you're vulnerable, they come after you. Yes. Um, and there's a whole... And even though um, it, sometimes you go to a conference and there's like thousands of people there, our fields are actually quite small. Mm -hmm. um, and rivalries and uh, fights and insults or, or people who feel that they've been mistreated, that can last 30 years. Yes. Um, yes. So I try in my work to say maybe writing is the place for that for mm. me. Like I try very hard. I, I just respect people mm -hmm. because the last thing I want is for somebody to be in my project and then feel like they now have 
people look at them funny when they walk right. or that they've developed a number of um, animosities with others yeah. <laughs> that were not there before or that were there, but they were latent, right? They were yeah. hidden. You couldn't see them. It goes from like um, something like a bit of a side eye to a more um, open confrontation. Oh, It does seem that you've touched upon in, in those last comments the the one of the reasons why writing in scholarly world is has a dominance because there is something about the the po- at least a certain kind of polished writing. I mean, yes. I think you can be you can be on the way to ideas in your writing. Um, and one of the things I'm so grateful for in um, the blogging world and in in even my own writing practices is just the ability to just not have it all worked out, but working it out through the writing. But scholarship, you know, and the writing dimension of it um, is static in that sense that it can be polished up and it can be presented as a completed thing. I think we're a, a little delusional in our sense of that, uh, that how polished it can be and how complete it ever is, but still it's there. Well, and it has, writing has you, then it has in my case, my husband, who sat around and looked at it yeah, and right. gave me my beloved husband, who's also my cinematographer and is an angel of my life. But, you know, he he will look through my stuff the same way I look through my stuff. Then it has the editors. Then it has the two reviewers. Then it has the revised version, which then has the editors, right. which then has the copy <laughs> editors. So um, there's this whole group of people who are polishing and making sure that things that could be misconstrued don't end up there or that they get explained. You know, there's this whole, whereas speech or, and even worse, speech that's being filmed. Right. <laughs> when, and the camera's intimidating and yeah. you're like, eh. um, that doesn't have all those levels of protection. Right. Um, it does have editing and that's why I like to have people look at their stuff uh, more than once, and sometimes you have to redo an interview. I mean, there yeah. are, um, but it <laughs> it is um, a riskier undertaking, Absolutely. even though it's a more, uh, I, I think it's a very lively one. Yes. You know. Well, I am really grateful that not only were you willing to take the risk when you were in graduate school, but you continued to have the courage to take the risk as a faculty member in the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State and to really push uh, the boundaries of of scholarship in innovative and exciting new ways. So thank you, Alex, for being on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. And thank you for supporting. I always say this, and it's true. Thank you for being a college that really supports innovation and forward thinking. You guys are a dream. Thank you. (laughs) A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, and our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoin. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcasts at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. I'm Dean Christopher Long, and I'll see you next time on the Liberal Arts Endeavor.